why do you even think about what's the cost of hiring a blind person as opposed to hiring a sighted person? Why do you even make that differentiation? Why don't you say, what is the cost of doing business? Rather than making the assumption, why don't you, for example, ask me, what are you going to need? And we have a budget for bringing on employees and we will use what areas of that budget. And I'm willing to put a little bit more money into it. But why worry about it in terms of numbers? Ask me what I need and how to get there. Because in part, my job as an employee wanting to come into your company should be to help educate you. Welcome to the Your Living Brand Live show. This show is all about how you communicate your value, how you build influence through trust, and recognizing who your audience is and who they are not. Through our weekly conversations with our guests, we will explore different ways to enable you to demonstrate your uniqueness while we ask them, what's your story? And now, welcome our host, Ben Baker. Welcome to another episode of the Your Living Brand Live show. Welcome back, my wonderful audience. It's Ben coming to you live, and we're having a great time. I appreciate you guys all the time. I appreciate the fact that you listen, that you email me at ben at yourbrandmarketing.com, that you comment on LinkedIn, that you tell me what you like, what you tell me what you don't like, and you tell me what you want to hear. And I've had some great guests in the past and done some really insightful things, but this is a one that I've really wanted to get going for a while. And I tried to get this person on September 11th, and it just didn't happen. And let me take you back to that day. Let me take you back 21 years ago to 8.45 a.m. in New York City and the North Tower. And the plane hits 150 feet, 15 stories over this person's head. And there's chaos and there's heat and there's smoke and there's yelling and there's panic. And one more thing, my guest has been blind since birth. Michael Higson, welcome to the show. I want to talk to you without trust and communication. There is no teamwork. So I'm glad to be able to have this conversation with you, Michael. Let's get into it. One of the things I love to say is that I've learned more from eight guide dogs about trust and teamwork and management style than I've ever learned from all the experts in management theory and so on in the world. Because with a guide dog, It's all about building a team. And I've been using guide dogs now since 1964. It's all about building a team. It's all about creating trust and doing it with someone who speaks a different language and thinks totally differently than you. And if you can do that and you can create that relationship, you certainly ought to be able to create it with humans. The big problem with humans is that we always keep thinking, well, what's their real agenda? How do I know I can trust them? Dogs don't do that. They don't trust unconditionally. They may love unconditionally, but they don't trust. And you still have to earn trust. And that's so important. I mean, for us to be able to realize that trust is something that's not automatic. I was always taught trust and verify. Trust people, but you got to verify that trust. Because if you don't verify that trust, it can lead to some serious problems. So, Michael, why don't I let you take people back to that day and give people a little bit of insight? Because you're one of these people, one of the 15,000 people or 14,000 people, depending on what numbers that they're picking, that actually made it out of the towers. And give some people some insights into that, what you learned from that experience. And then let's get into how that relates to trust and communication. We'll start with a couple of ground rules. 
And that is that you need to understand blindness because everybody says, oh, it's amazing how you got out of this because you couldn't see what you were doing. Blindness is not the problem I face. The problem I face consists of the misconceptions and lack of education that people have about blindness. The fact of the matter is that a blind person could do basically anything that a sighted person can do. When I go and speak, and I travel and speak all over the world, and if, by the way, any of your listeners out there need a speaker, I'd love to chat with you about it. But what I would say is that when I go and speak, especially with kids, one of the questions that I ask before even doing the speech is, tell me something that a blind person can't do. What do you think the first answer is? See. Well, okay. <laughs> but the dictionary defines to see is to perceive. So that doesn't work either. Exactly. You're assuming it has to be with the eyes. So tell me something that else that you think a blind person can't do. I don't know because, I mean, I've known you. I've known Hobie Wedler. I know a bunch of blind people. So I'm the worst person to ask this to because <laughs> I believe that a blind person can do almost anything, if not everything, that the sighted person do. Maybe save drive a car or something. Exactly what people say. And the answer is you're wrong. Okay. If you go to www.blinddriverchallenge.org, you will see a video on that page of a gentleman who is blind driving a car around the Daytona Speedway right before the Rolex 24 race in 2011. And Mark Riccobono is driving through an obstacle course passing a vehicle, doing all sorts of things, because the National Federation of the Blind challenged the world, if you will, challenged colleges and universities and private industry to develop a car a blind person could drive. And basically what they did is that some people did it. By using radar and sonar technology and so on, they developed a mechanism to transmit to a driver the information that they need to drive safely down the road. Now, is it ready for prime time? No, it's not. And I'm not talking about an autonomous vehicle. I'm talking about actually getting the information and steering the car like anyone else would do. But if you go to blinddriverchallenge.org, you can see a video of him doing that. There's also just recently a blind man set the, well, the world speed record for a blind person driving a vehicle. I think he went 211 miles an hour. It was across an area. And Probably out in the salt. Wasn't on the salt flats. I think it was in Texas or New Mexico. I can't remember which, but he drove 211 miles an hour, broke the record by 10 miles an hour. The fact of the matter is blindness isn't the problem. It is what people think about it. That causes us to have an unemployment rate of among employable blind people of about 65%. And it's not again because we can't work, it's because people think we can't work and they find all sorts of reasons not to hire us. But the reality is, if they would, they would find they would get a lot more loyal employees. Well, having set that rule, the reason I wanted to bring that discussion into it is that when I was working in the World Trade Center, I was hired to be the Mid-Atlantic Region Sales Manager for Quantum Corporation, which was a company at the time that made backup products. We made the tape backup products that people use to attach to their networks and back up all of their computer data. And in New York, you have to do that if you're a Wall Street firm, for example, and keep the data offsite for seven years. So we sold the equipment and manufactured the equipment that people used to do that. So I was hired to open an office, set up a team, and also work with reseller partners. So I did all that. And one of the things that I did when I started working in there was I realized that if I was going to truly be a manager and be able to do what any manager would do, 
I needed to make sure I could do all the things that a manager could do. And that meant, for example, if we had people in, take them out to lunch, nowhere to go, get to the restaurant. I had to be able to talk intelligently about the products and talk about, for me, all the technical aspects of it, being technical with a master's degree in physics. And those are all things I learned. But especially dealing with the World Trade Center, I learned how to find anything in the complex that I needed to find. I learned what all the little kiosks were down in the shopping area on the first floor, the shopping mall. I learned where various offices were. I consulted with the Port Authority police and fire prevention people and so on and learned what to do in an emergency. And why did I do all that? Because I knew if there were ever an emergency, I was going to have to be the leader to get people in my office out. If we had guests, get them out. Because all you sighted people look at signs. And you don't know in an emergency if the room might be filled with smoke and you're not going to be able to see the signs. So it's what I would do as a blind person to make sure that I knew everything that I needed to know in order to function properly. Now, I want to make it clear, I needed to know that, not the dog. A guide dog's job is to make sure that I walk safely, not to know where I want to go and how to get there, which is also another way of saying dogs don't lead blind people, which is something that people always say to me, oh, your dog led you out. Wrong. Dog did not lead me out. I gave the dog directions of where I wanted the dog to turn, what I wanted the dog to do, and the dog made sure that we walked safely. It's my responsibility to be the team leader and, in the case of a guide dog, to gain and create a level of trust, which I did. So, again, having described all of that and set that kind of as a background, on September 11th, we were in our office and we had some guests in because we were starting to do some seminars that day to teach some of our reseller partners, how to sell our products. And we were getting pretty much to the point where we were going to do the actual seminars. But then suddenly we heard a muffled explosion. The building kind of shuddered and then it began to tip. Literally, as I'm tipping my hand right now toward my computer screen and the camera, the building tipped. It's a big spring. Tall buildings like that are flexible. They're made to flex in wind and even be hit by an airplane. But nobody ever thought that somebody would hit a building with an airplane full of 26,000 pounds of jet fuel. No, I mean, the thing is, those planes were designed to withstand a 707, not a 757. Well, it wasn't the plane, though. It was the jet fuel, but it's it was that the fuel. much more jet fuel because it's exponential. Yeah, if the plane had hit the building and it didn't have much fuel, the buildings wouldn't have collapsed. The problem is that the people who hijacked the aircraft flew fully loaded aircraft into the buildings and that destroyed the infrastructure. But the bottom line is what happened happened. But anyway, for me, as soon as the building stopped moving, the mindset kicked in. I didn't even realize I had developed a mindset that said, if there's something that happens, you know what to do. And somebody in the office with me was seeing fire and smoke above us and saying the building was on fire and we had to get out. And I kept saying, slow down. And finally, he said, you don't understand. You can't see it. And well, the problem wasn't what I didn't understand and what I couldn't see. The problem was what he wasn't observing. What he wasn't observing that I was, was that next to me, I had a dog who was just sitting there wagging her tail, yawning, going, who woke me up? Not giving any evidence of fear at all. And dogs have a heightened sense of those kinds of things. And if the dog had sensed anything that would have caused it concern, she would have been behaving a whole lot different than she did. But Roselle was very calm. And that told me whatever was going on wasn't such an imminent threat to us that we couldn't try to evacuate it in an orderly way. Did we know what happened? No. Did I know what happened? No. 
Did other people in the building around us know what happened? No. Eyesight had nothing to do with it. Of course, reporters are always saying to me, well, you didn't know because you couldn't see it. Excuse me. The airplane hit 18 floors above us on the other side of the building. Nobody knew. And so all we knew was we did need to get out. And we got our guests to the stairs. Then we went to the stairs and we started down. We figured out an airplane hit the building because I smelled burning jet fuel. I traveled through a lot of airports. And even back then, even for my company, did a lot of travel. And so I recognized the odor, but it took me a few floors to recognize it. And then when I observed it to other people, they said, yeah, we must have been hit by an airplane. You're right. That's burning jet fuel. What happened? Nobody knew. And we didn't know until we got out. And actually, I didn't really know what happened until both towers collapsed and I was able to reach my wife on the phone. And she's the one who told us how two aircraft had crashed into the towers, one into the Pentagon and a fourth was still, when I spoke with her, missing over Pennsylvania. We went down the stairs. We all worked together to get out. We made sure that people didn't panic. There were a couple of times that people almost lost it. We stopped and had a group hug on the stairs and said, come on, we can keep going. And we did. And we made it down to the bottom and we finally made it out. And the thought process is you were prepared for imminent danger long before there was imminent danger because you had the presence as a leader to sit there and say, if there is ever a problem, if there's ever a situation And you had no idea what it was going to be. What do I need to do as a leader to make sure that I not only take care of myself, but take care of the people around me? And that's exactly the point. And it was, for me, also an issue of, as the leader, not only did I need to know what to do in an emergency, but I needed to know it so that if, for example, we had customers coming to visit us, my sales staff brought somebody in and we did a demo and then we were going to go to lunch and then we were going to come back and discuss contracts and pricing. I needed to take charge like any leader would do, because how would it look if I said, oh, I don't know how to get anywhere. I'm going to have to hold somebody's arm and just be taken to wherever we're going. Who's going to want to negotiate with me? I needed to negotiate. I needed to be able to be viewed as somebody who could negotiate from the power of strength or at least conviction that I had. So I needed to be able to function as well as anyone else who had the same kind of job that I had. Don't disagree with that. I mean, I had probably a far better view of what was going on in 9-11 than you did, because I was sitting 3,000 miles away with 40 different cameras from 25 different angles pointed at this thing with running commentary about what was going on. The people that I know that descended through the tower tell a similar story that you did. They didn't realize until they got out the extent of the impact, the extent of the danger of what was really going on until they were out of the building. So it came down to some people led, some people followed, and a lot of it had nothing to do with the title on your business card. It had to do with your sense of presence and your ability to A, communicate, to build trust and develop the teamwork necessary to get your team and that team included the guests that were on your floor that day down to safety. That is exactly true. It's all about having the presence, having the conviction and the understanding of what was involved in leading an office in that complex. And I believe that anyone who is going to be a leader should do the same sorts of things that I did. Don't rely on signs. You need to really take charge of what you're doing. Now, the other side of it is that you never know who's going to be a leader at any given time. And as you said, it doesn't matter which on your business card. The fact is that 
some of the people who helped lead that day and some people who took a leadership position even for a few moments did so because they were in the right place at the right time and took charge. And then when somebody else could do a little bit more than they did or whatever, then leadership was relinquished or shared, which is just as important. And that's also true on the job. The reality is the boss may not be the leader and the boss may not be a good boss if the boss doesn't know that the boss isn't necessarily the leader. And the reality is that all of us can and should be leaders where we can do the best job to make our options what they need to be and make the company more successful. And the heads of companies need to recognize that all the more today than ever. I agree. So let's bring this down back to the here and now 21 years ago. And what did you do? Because were you the senior person on the floor at that time? Were you the person that was quote unquote in charge if you want to take a look at business cards? Well, in that office and for my company, yeah, I was the guy. Okay. I was a Mid-Atlantic Region sales manager. I hired sales staff and was involved in hiring our support staff and others. Yeah, I was the guy. So how did you go about for a staff? I mean, I have no idea how many people were on that floor that day, but I'm assuming it was not 10 people. Being able in the middle of the chaos to be able to have the presence of mind to be able to gather people and move them quickly, efficiently, and effectively to the exits. I mean, take me back a month, a year, five years ahead of time. And what are the things that you built within you that enabled you to have the respect of the people where they trusted someone who was not cited to be able to take a charge and move everybody forward at that point in time? Hi, everyone. Do you want to be your best customer's vendor of choice? Do you want to cement relationships with them, add real value, and gain insights that your competitors just can't get? Go to podcasthostforhire.com. That's podcasthostforhire.com. And let's work together to make you the value vendor of choice. So actually, our office wasn't the entire floor. It was the only part of the floor, but we did have seven or eight people in our office. But your question is still valid, not only for the office, but for going down the stairs. And let me answer it this way. My parents brought me up to recognize and believe I could do whatever I chose to do. In reality, they were risk takers because they let me do that. And I guess that I became somewhat of a risk taker. And so I tend to be pretty outgoing, especially in situations where I want to get more information or be able to use the information that I have. And I know I need to do that not in an arrogant way, but I need to do it in a way that builds a relationship. So when we were going down the stairs, there were times that I know there were a lot of people following me down the stairs. I know it because people told me about it later. But at the time, what I was doing was just trying to, well, not only keep me calm by focusing and not worrying about the things that I had no control over, but also I had instantaneous and immediate responsibility to keep a dog focused. So Roselle, my guide dog, would certainly become more nervous and tense if she sensed fear all around us and especially if she sensed that I was afraid. So I didn't dare show fear while working with her because that would have affected her ability and her actions as a guide dog. So I needed to be able to focus and did so by saying things to her all the way down the stairs. Good girl. What a good dog. Keep going. What a good job you're doing. Good dog, Roselle. And doing that all the way down the stairs. But what that did is it also 
was something that other people were observing. And they told me, you were calm all the way down the stairs. And if you could be that calm going down the stairs, then we're going to follow you down the stairs. And that's exactly the kinds of things that happened. And so for me, being blind, I recognize that I need to be confident in what I can do. I also need to recognize that I need to learn all the time. There are always going to be new things to learn. So I'm not going to sit here and say, I know everything there is to know. I will always say, I want to learn more, but I will use effectively the knowledge that I have. And so in dealing with September 11th and developing a relationship with people. So in my office, for example, whenever I hired someone, one of the things that I said to them was, yes, I hired you. I'm your boss, but I hired you because I believe you know how to do what it is that you need to do. Your job and my job together need to be, however, to figure out how I can add value to you, to enhance you, to help you do your job better. Again, my job's not to tell you what to do, but I do want to add value and help you be more successful. And especially the better salespeople I hired got that. And we found ways to work together to go into meetings and double team the people in meetings and do all sorts of things that were very effective, but also helped to develop a level of trust, not only between us ourselves, but with the people that we were meeting with. So for example, if we went into a sales meeting somewhere like at Solomon Brothers at the time where we were going to be discussing our products and we were going to do a PowerPoint show, I did the PowerPoint show because they wouldn't expect that. And I was able to keep their attention. In fact, one guy came up once after doing one of those presentations and said, these shows are usually pretty boring. Yours wasn't. And we didn't dare fall asleep like we usually do because you also didn't turn away and look at the screen and point at things because I had practiced doing the show. So I pointed over my shoulder. You didn't look away. We forgot you were blind. We were afraid if you fell asleep, you'd catch us. And I said, well, if you'd remembered I was blind, it wouldn't have mattered because the dog's down here taking notes. So we would have got you anyway. The point is that you use the skills that you have, but you got to use them in a way to gain respect, to earn respect, and to establish a relationship. And by the way, the meeting that I just mentioned, by the time we were done, because I kept asking questions about what they were looking for, our product wasn't going to do what they wanted. And I told them that. And in fact, I said, here's why it won't. Here's another product that will. Here's why it will. And they bought that other product. But two weeks later, they called and they said, we've got another project and it's bigger than the first one. And we know because of everything that you taught us and we trust you that your product is going to do what we need. Just tell us the price and we'll order it today. That's trust. That's huge trust. There's so much to unpack there. I mean, the first thing I think about when you're dealing with your salespeople and the rest of your teams is expectations and accountability. Whether you're blind, whether you're sighted, whether you're in a wheelchair, whatever you are, it comes down to if we set expectations, if we communicate what we need from each other, not just you of the team member, but the team members of you, and you hold each other accountable, it's amazing the things that can happen because salespeople need to know that say, when I come to Michael and I've got a real problem, Michael's not going to ignore me. And you need to know that the people, when you give them a task, they're going to figure a way to make it happen. Or they're going to ask me for help to make it happen. Absolutely. That's what a team is all about. Accountability is absolutely key. And there's nothing wrong with an employee holding a boss accountable. It is absolutely important for me to be able to say, here's what I commit to doing. And you certainly have the right to ask how it's going, 
because it may very well be that I got stuck and you can help me move through it. But that's how we work together. But accountability goes always. It isn't just boss telling subordinates what to do in a real team that's working well together. No, I couldn't agree more. And the other part you're doing with dealing with customer relationships is that when you create the unexpected for them, when you give them something to think about that's beyond the normal, it's different, that's unique, you become memorable. Yeah. If everybody can sit there and say, listen, I've got strengths, you have strengths. I have weaknesses, you have weaknesses. Let's play to both of our strengths. Hey, listen, Michael, you do the presentation because it's going to be coming in a way that they weren't expecting. You're absolutely qualified to do it. And you know what? We're going to get their attention far better in this particular case. So it's a matter of sitting there going, it's not about my ego versus your ego. It's saying, what's the end objective? What are we trying to achieve? All right. How do we work as a team to be able to get there? Well, and I will tell you that a number of my employees at various times said, how come you know so much about all this? How come you're able to do this? How come you know so much technical about the products and I don't? And my response typically, and even my best sales guy asked me this when we went out of one of our meetings, he said, how come you know all this stuff? And I said, did you read the product bulletin that came out last week, the product briefing? Well, no, I've been pretty busy. I said, there you go. They're not put out just to put them out. They're put out for information. And you need to, we all need to make sure that we keep up with that stuff. That's part of what we need to do to be as competent as we could. Now, admittedly, I tend to be more technical. I've always been. And so I would probably pay a lot more attention than most salespeople would be to a lot of the product things and the updates and knowing more about the products and all that. So that gives me value add for them. And I knew that they weren't going to spend all the time that they could or probably should reading all the technical stuff, nor would they get it all. So that's okay as long as the knowledge is available and they use it. And if that means letting me help, then that adds value to them, which is great. But it's also about fostering curiosity. And I think that's something that we as a society are losing is the ability to be curious, to ask why, why not, how come, and be looking for more information to not just take everything for granted, not to say, says, well, I assume it's going to be this way, so therefore it's going to be this way. Assuming that a blind person couldn't drive a car. That's an assumption I've had my entire life. If that can change, if the technology ever becomes available that allows for that hand-eye coordination or lack of hand-eye coordination and the response time and be able to have the technology that can be able to mitigate that, that's phenomenal. But I hadn't even thought that that was even a possibility. But it's amazing when you sit there and say, okay, let's forget about our assumptions. Let's forget about what we think we know. And let's actually go find out if something is true or it's not true. We put ourselves in a far better location. Going back to blindness and just disabilities in general, the average employer thinks it costs a lot of money to provide accommodations to make it possible for, a, let's say, a blind person to work at your company. Oh, you need a special software so that your computer can talk or you need one thing or another. Let's look at what happens in the average company. They spend hundreds or thousands of dollars providing coffee machines, nice fancy touchscreen coffee machines, which also are inaccessible, by the way. And so people can get hot chocolate, all different kinds of coffee, tea and all that. They have lights so that you can see to get around in the building. You're provided with a computer and a monitor so that you can see what's going on with the computer. 
you're provided a desk and you're provided a chair. Those are all accommodations that employers provide. Why should it be any different instead of providing me with a monitor to instead provide me with software that allows me to hear what's coming across the computer screen or perhaps someone to read information that is otherwise visually inaccessible? Why should that be any different than providing some of the frivolous or maybe not so frivolous, but still not as necessary as we think they are, accommodations that we already provide for people. The fact of the matter is that the upside of providing me with what I need to be able to be employed by your company is greater than what would happen to be the case for the average employee. Because I know, and many of us who are blind, for example, know how hard it is to get a job. We know how hard it is to crash through that barrier that you have around you of what it's like to be blind because you really don't know. So as you said, people make assumptions. But if in fact you hire me, there is a significantly greater chance I'm going to want to stay with you because I don't want to go off and try to do another job search and go through all that again. I don't want to go through all of that. I'm going to stay where somebody appreciates me and where they've obviously demonstrated loyalty to be. And there's a lot of statistics to show that. So providing me with the appropriate accommodations is no different than providing anyone else with accommodations. It's just a specifically little bit different thing. It isn't more expensive. It is just an expense that's part of the cost of doing business or ought to be. And I I agree with you, but the challenge is, and I'm going to take this from an employer from a small business point of view, we don't know what we don't know. And we don't know how much it's going to cost or what are the accommodations that we need to make or how do we access government funding. But you're worrying about that. Absolutely. Why do you even think about what's the cost of hiring a blind person as opposed to hiring a sighted person? Why do you even make that differentiation? Why don't you say, what is the cost of doing business? Rather than making the assumption, why don't you, for example, ask me? What are you going to need? And we have a budget for bringing on employees and we will use what areas of that budget. And I'm willing to put a little bit more money into it. But why worry about it in terms of numbers? Ask me what I need and how to get there. Because in part, my job as an employee wanting to come into your company should be to help educate you. And so the answer to the question of the cost is, as you point out, There are a number of different kinds of programs. All states have a Department of Rehabilitation in the United States. There are similar things in Canada. Organizations like the Canadian National Institute for the Blind can help. There are a lot of resources. The fact is, as an employee wanting to join your company, I need to be the expert to help you with that. Because if you let me do that and you're willing to be wise enough to let me or to ask me those questions, and if I have those answers, that should convey something to you about how thorough I'll be for your company. But more important, I can then give you and help you get the information to make it possible for you to want to hire me and spend whatever money you need to do. So it really comes down to don't make the assumptions as you pointed out, but rather be more open to asking me because as the employee, I really better have those answers. Otherwise, why would you want to even consider me? That's true for any employee that you hire, but typically for most employees, it's sort of a standard thing, right? 
monitor, computer, access to the coffee machine and so on. I happen to be different because I'm blind. So some of that's going to be different. So who should be the person to best guide you as an employer through that process? It should be me. And I think that a lot of it comes down to perception of this is going to be an exorbitant cost, which it really probably isn't. It's perception. It's not knowing what you don't know. But again, go back and tape the leap the other way. So it costs $2,000 more because you got to buy a special software package from, it isn't $2,000, it's less than that, but I'm just making up a number. But I want to make up a decent number, $2,000. The question you've got to look at also is, what is the benefit of me hiring you? The long-term ROI is proven. There's no question that the long-term ROI is proven. As you said, more loyal employees, more engaged employees, employees with longer tenure. There's no question about that. The problem is, and it comes down to, people don't know what they don't know. And if employers actually took the time to actually educate themselves, to be curious, to learn, to communicate, they would find that it actually is not as big an onerous challenge as they think it is. And I think that that's where we really need to take this conversation, leave this conversation, is that, The opportunities are there and people of all different abilities can make phenomenal employees. It's just a matter of giving them the opportunity to prove themselves. And I think that they deserve it. So I use a piece of software called JAWS, which stands for Job Access with Speech, which is a software package that will monitor what's going to the video card on my computer and then as a result to the monitor, and it will verbalize it if it's text. So there's a cost for that. But I have a copy of it because I use it at home. Now, the issue is I could and would say if somebody were going to be hiring me, I can bring JAWS in and just install it. No, we really need to have our own copy because of security and all that. Okay, that means you're going to have to pay for it. Or we explore in the United States, in my case, California Department of Rehabilitation that wants me to be employed providing that product. Some companies might say, okay, yeah, bring your own in, but it just depends on the company. But don't ding me if you decide you don't want me to use my software. That is, don't hold me responsible and say it's more expensive. I can appreciate that. A lot of people have their own computer monitors and you don't see them offering to bring their monitors in because companies provide it. It should be as automatic to make accommodations for a person who happens to have a disability. And it's a reasonable thing to expect. And you're right. Most people don't know it and they make assumptions and they make the wrong assumptions. But that is what we do in general anyway. We don't understand that this whole idea of disability, I wish there were a better term, but disability doesn't mean lack of ability. Disability is a categorization only for purposes of saying, I happen to be a little bit different than you, but don't assume from that that I'm incapable. I've had job interviews canceled When I didn't say in advance that I was blind, I had a headhunter who wanted to see my resume. They knew I was looking for a job. They loved the resume. They had a company that wanted to look at me and interview me and so on. And we had an interview set up. We even had airplane reservations made. They bought a ticket. The night before, the headhunter called and said, I was just looking at your resume. I see that you do a lot of stuff with blind people. Is somebody blind in your family? And I said, yeah, I am. The interview was canceled. It didn't matter what was on the resume. We didn't even get to costs. We didn't get to anything. Oh, you're blind. Well, the company's not going to want to talk to you then. Why? 
You saw my resume. You like my resume. Well, that doesn't matter. You're blind. We've got to get over that concept, period. It is unacceptable today. There are laws. They're not as strong in Canada as in the U.S., but the laws are there. And the reality is that society, it is very slow, much slower than with other minorities, but it is slowly recognizing that the so-called disability isn't the problem, it's our attitude. We can talk about this for hours, and there's no question we can talk about this for hours, but I need to land this plane, figuratively and metaphorically. Sure. What's the best way for people to get in touch with you? Because you've got so much information to give people, and I think that people need to hear from you. So what's the best way for people to get in touch with you so they can get the information directly from you? Well, they're welcome to go to my website, www.michaelhingson.com. There's a contact form. If they might want a speaker to come and speak to a company, a sales meeting or whatever, always looking for those opportunities. I'm glad to consult and help companies understand and work with them, not only about disabilities, but building teams. I do that. We didn't mention it, but work for a company called Accessibe, A-C-C-E-S-S-I, capital B-E, that manufactures products that help make internet websites more accessible. You talk about assumptions. The problem in the world today is that over 98% of all websites have not done anything to specifically put the appropriate coding and procedures and processes on their sites to make them accessible. And with so many websites being created every minute, like 180 a minute, we are seeing an increasing gap of websites that aren't accessible, ironically, when every website could easily be accessible. So let me ask you one last question, and then let me let you out the door. The question I ask everybody is, when you leave the meeting and you head for home, What's the one thing you want people to think about you when you're not in the room? That they can trust me and that I will do all I can to assist and be value add to them and whatever they do. Michael, thank you very much for telling your story. Thanks for being such an amazing guest. People need to find out about accessibility. People need to find out about how to be able to hire blind people and people with accessibility issues and realize that they add just as much value as everybody else. And we need to find ways to be able to sit there and say, how do we work differently to be able to make sure that these people can add value to our organization? So thank you for being such an amazing guest. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. This has been the YourLivingBrand.Live show. I want to thank you for tuning in today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show at YourLivingBrand.Live and share your favorite episodes with colleagues and friends. At Your Brand Marketing, we help companies engage, retain, and grow their most valuable assets, their employees. If you're tired of losing great staff and want to retain your best employees, build brand champions and leaders at any level. Contact us for a 30-minute consultation at yourbrandmarketing.com. That's www.yourbrandmarketing.com. Thank you again for listening and sharing. Tune in next week when we ask another guest, What's your story?